information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello, and welcome to the ANPT Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast on testing for vestibular hypofunction. I am Maureen Clancy, and I'm joined today by Dr. Edward Cho. Dr. Cho completed his residency training at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, after which he did a one-year fellowship in vestibular and balance disorders. He previously practiced at the House Ear Clinic from 2013 to 2021 and is now an otolaryngologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center who focuses on vestibular imbalance disorders. He is active with the American Academy of Otolaryngology, presenting on vertigo and balance disorders, and also active with the Equilibrium Committee. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for the introduction, Maureen. So my first question is, can you briefly describe vestibular hypofunction, both unilateral and bilateral? Sure, so uh, vestibular hypofunction is a sudden loss of balance function that occurs. It could be divided into the acute and chronic stages. And I would say most physical therapists probably see people in the acute stage when they're not compensated. In terms of unilateral hypofunction, typically a patient would experience a sensation of vertigo, room spinning. And as a clinician, if you examine their eyes in the acute stage, you would see evidence of peripheral nystagmus. Bilateral vestibular hypofunction, on the other hand, is a loss of function on both sides at the same time. Because it occurs at the same time, there typically is not the vertigo, the room spinning vertigo, but patients typically complain of a phenomenon called oscillopsia. Basically, as they're walking through the environment, it looks like the room is bouncing up and down, kind of like what you would see if you have a handheld camera, uh, using a handheld camera to film a movie. Okay. So there's different reasons why a person could have like a unilateral hypofunction, such as neuritis or labyrinthitis. Could you delve a little deeper into what the causes are and the difference between those two? Sure. The main difference between labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis is what uh, systems are affected. So both of them cause vertigo. So the vestibular nerve, uh, vestibular neurons are affected. But the difference with labyrinthitis is that it also affects hearing as well. The etiology for both of them is many of the cases are thought to be viral. There are some cases for labyrinthitis that can be bacterial, perhaps a middle ear infection that causes inflammation inside the inner ear. Uh, but, but by far, most of the cases tend to be viral. Okay, so if a patient presents with hearing loss, you're going to more think of labyrinthitis and neuritis. Yes, correct. Um, there are other uh, interesting type of cases. For example, some individuals who have shingles that affect the ear, so-called um, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, also known as herpes zoster oticus, not only would have facial weakness, but they could have hearing loss and vertigo. So that would be like a another sort of syndrome, but would, would fit into a labyrinthitis type of category. Okay. So once the damage occurs to that peripheral apparatus, what would recovery and compensation look like for a particular patient? Yeah. So most patients go through various stages of recovery, uh, particularly for a unilateral hypofunction. There would initially, so, so kind of going into um, some of the, the, the the background uh, anatomy physiology. 
typically the vestibular neurons are both the, the pair, the right and left side are tonically activated. While they're activated, equal and opposite signals cancel each other out. Of course, when you have an acute hypofunction, you lose function on one side. Let's say, for example, the right side, you lose function. So then you have the left side where that tonic stimulation is not opposed. That's why you get the nystagmus and the vertigo. Uh, usually around day two or three, there's a hypothesis, a cerebellar clamp hypothesis that, that basically um, what happens is, so after the, the, let's say the right inner ear is damaged, the cerebellum realizes that the left tonic activation is unopposed. And so the brain actually clamps down on the good side. And so interestingly, patients two or three days in can sometimes complain of bilateral hypofunction types of symptoms like oscillopsia. But in general, um, the first, say, three to six weeks are, are the, the, the stage of where static compensation would occur. Basically, a patient sitting still would not have spontaneous nystagmus. They would read and, and find that objects are fairly still in their surround. And then dynamic compensation, ones that involve more the, the head and uh, eye movement type exercises, it takes anywhere from say like three to 12 months. There are some individuals who take even longer and, and some individuals who, who don't compensate beyond uh, uh, 12 months or two years. Okay. So if you have a patient who's presenting subjectively with the signs of symptoms consistent with hypofunction, so maybe they're complaining of obsolopsia or they're complaining of dizziness, how would you structure your physical examination and what would you specifically look at? Yeah, so in general, otolaryngology has a, a fairly standard physical exam. We go through ear, nose, and throat. Uh, I particularly focus on the ears, looking at the uh, otoscopy, middle ear area. But the, the tests that are particularly relevant are the tests that are used. Um, I like to think of uh, uh, this uh, HINTS test. HINTS test stands for head impulse, nystagmus, and test of skew. The HINTS test is used by emergency room physicians to differentiate between stroke and vestibular neuritis. But I feel like the first two elements, the head impulse test and looking for st spontaneous nystagmus are definitely relevant for um, our, our situation. So head impulse test is very important. Um, quick movement of the head, one side or the other, having the patient focus on your nose, basically looking at the vestibulo-ocular reflex. Looking for spontaneous nystagmus is very helpful as well because you'll tend to see that in the acute phase. Um, and then the other test that, that I typically do for my examination is a Romberg test. Romberg is not really specific for loss of VOR, vestibulo-ocular reflex function. Romberg tests vestibulospinal. There's a lot of other reflexes that are tested with that, but uh, an individual can have a tendency to fall towards the hypofunctional side on the Romberg test. So really those three main tests I think are most important, head impulse test, looking for spontaneous nystagmus and Romberg. And would you expect to see different um, presentations in the patient depending upon how far out they are? For example, if a patient is coming to you in a few days, would you potentially see that nystagmus, but maybe if it's been, they couldn't get in for like a week or two because they were feeling so sick, like how would they present differently in the different timeframes? 
Yes, exactly. So in, in the acute phase, yeah, within a few days, you're more likely to see the spontaneous nystagmus. About a week or two afterwards, it would be much more difficult to see it. Now, of course, if you had Frenzel goggles or you remove fixation, often you can see the spontaneous nystagmus a little bit longer, you know, a few weeks out. As far as the head impulse test, um, the head impulse test tends to stay positive for a longer duration. Uh, you know, maybe three to four months out, it, it might be less present, but then I've had some patients who are years out where it's still positive head impulse test. And then in terms of Romberg, um, once again, the, the tendency of falling towards the hypofunctional side is usually more in the acute stages, the first few weeks, and then later on patients compensate and, and, and do pretty well with that. Now, would you expect to have different findings if the patient had a unilateral hypofunction versus bilateral? Yes, definitely. Uh, in terms of um, unilateral versus bilateral, for, for bilateral, they, they would not have uh, spontaneous nystagmus because the loss is equal and opposite. For a head impulse test, you would most likely see the catch-up saccades on, on both sides when you're doing the head impulse test. And in terms of the Romberg, you know, that's pretty nonspecific, but I would say many people with bilateral hypofunction, because they are so visually reliant, would have a tendency of uh, having problems with Romberg testing. Okay. And when would you um, or need to send somebody for further testing, or do you do that yourself in terms of like ENG, VNG testing? So in my particular uh, clinic, I, I don't, often send for ENG or VNG testing. I think there are definitely some clear indications of when you would want to do that. Um, sometimes a patient just wants clarification of their diagnosis, even though they have the classic history, classic exam, they want an objective test that will tell what percentage weakness they have. So that would be one potential indication. Another potential indication would be as you're going along with physical therapy, some patients have difficulty compensating or fail to compensate. And so VNG, ENG can be helpful in determining the degree of compensation. And then thirdly, um, if a patient, uh, for example, has labyrinthitis and has hearing loss and needs a cochlear implant down the line, we often get VNG testing to assess how much vestibular function is remaining in in the good ear, just because you don't want to make somebody have bilateral hypofunction through a, a surgical procedure like a cochlear implant. Okay. And is there any limitations to doing the um, VNG testing? In terms of the VNG testing, it, it typically is very well tolerated, um, uh, usually done by audiologists. Uh, in terms of limitations, I mean, one limitation is that uh, VNG testing will never tell you about the amount of disability that the patient feels. Uh, disability is a subjective measure. It's not really something that is objectively quantifiable through VNG testing. Um, the other thing is it, looking at the particular aspects of the VNG test, and it, it might be helpful to talk about what the elements of a, a VNG are. Um, in particular, the caloric testing that's done does not test the, the vertical canals, the superior posterior canal just tests the horizontal canal. Um, I, I would say, yeah, that, that would be the, the main limitation. And in the whole VNG test battery, typically the most useful portion is the caloric testing.
Okay. So is there a certain number that you're looking for in terms of the caloric testing in order to say that that person has a hypofunction on that side, or is it just dependent upon the different place that they go to have that done? So in terms of caloric testing, basically we're looking for slow phase eye movements, stimulating with warm and cool water or air um, or ice in, in some instances. There's a formula called the John Keyes formula that basically compares one ear to the other and measures something called an RVR, relative vestibular reduction. Now there is a cutoff point. I mean, uh, the, the cutoff value is 25 to 30%. Uh, that, that it, it varies from lab to lab, but 25 to 30%. So basically you need to have a 25 to 30% difference between the ear to call the weakness uh, significant, statistically significant. Okay. But a patient who potentially has a 20% weakness still may end up having symptoms and have disability from it, but it just wouldn't be necessarily quantifiable on that testing. Correct. And, and that's why I always teach residents, fellows I'm working with that by far history is the most important. Uh, testing can be done to try to confirm the history. But for example, if someone had an acute vestibular neuritis and got prednisone steroids, like within a week, there's a lot of good evidence, randomized controlled trials that you can have uh, improvement in caloric testing function. You know, you start off maybe with like a 60% weakness and then that caloric weakness uh, basically dissipates or, or disappears with, with steroid usage. So there can be various things that can affect the results of uh, caloric testing. And would you expect over time, like say a person presents five years after having this, would you expect any change in the caloric stuff that was done later on? You know, was there be ability for that to kind of improve or would it kind of stay the same always? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Now, just to preface everything, um, most of the tests we do that, that are helpful are tests of the VOR. And so it includes things like caloric testing, rotary chair testing, video head impulse V-hit testing. And caloric testing in particular tends to not change over time. We, we tend to not see an improvement in, in caloric function. Once you have a loss, um, unless acutely with steroids, you reverse some of that loss, usually chronically uh, month to three months out, whatever you get is, is typically what you're going to see the, the rest of the patient's life. Okay. And can you explain a little bit about like the V-HIT or the rotary chair test kind of when they tend to be used and kind of what they, what they are? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, they're all tests of VOR and they're all complementary because they focus on the VOR at different frequencies. And so, for example, the um, caloric test it, the, the frequency that it measures is 0 0.003 hertz. What that means in real life is imagine you have someone seated in a chair and you rotate them one cycle around in five and a half minutes. That's what a caloric test stimulation is equivalent to in, 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 a, um, in terms of VOR. So clearly that is not physiologic because nobody turns in the chair in five and a half minutes. Rotary chair testing is a little bit more physiologic, and that test is, is unique in that that is really the only calibrated quantitative test. 
In other words, you know what VOR stimulus you're putting in, so then you can graph that and, and see what's going, coming out. And basically, the, the frequencies in hertz that are measured for rotary chair are 0.01 to 0.064 hertz. It's calibrated, it's quantitative. Um, and then VHIT is physiologic, obviously, because you're do, basically doing a head impulse test. But the advantage of the, the VHIT test is that the, the machine can detect saccades that even the human eye is not able to see. When you do the head impulse test in the office, turn the head quickly, see that catch-up saccade, that's considered an overt saccade. It's obvious, it's apparent. And the reason it's apparent is that that saccade occurs after the, the head turn. You, you turn the head and then the saccade happens. As people go through stages of compensation, the saccades become more covert. Basically, the saccades start to happen earlier while you're turning the head. And so to the naked eye, you're not going to be able to see that because it's, it's virtually impossible to see something when you're turn, in the midst of turning the head. But of course, a computer can see that because it's, it's fixed on the, on the head. Okay. So when would a patient be sent for those particular tests versus just being sent for, you know, rehab in a PT setting? Yes. So in terms of um, each of the tests have, have strengths and, and, and uh, weaknesses. As far as the, the caloric testing, um, as I mentioned, the, the main weakness for that is it's non-physiologic one rotation in a chair every five and a half minutes. But one of the benefits is that it is localizing. It does localize to the right or to the left ear. Um, the VHIT test is also a localizing test as well. Um, and, and the advantage, particular advantage of the VHIT test is that it can test the vertical canals, the posterior and superior canals, while the caloric test is not able to do it. Plus the VHIT is at more of a physiologic speed. The rotary chair test, which is far less available, I mean, you, you need a lot of infrastructure for that, a particular build out, they're a lot more expensive. The rotary chair test is, is helpful for, for a few specific indications. Number one, it is the gold standard for diagnosing bilateral vestibular hypofunction. Um, of course, you can diagnose it based on history, you know, what, what you may see on caloric testing, but, it's, it's, but you really need a rotary chair test if it's a medical legal case or if there's some other uh, uh, reason you need such a quantification of, of their hypofunction. And the rotary chair test is, since it's calibrated, is really best to assess for degree of compensation because that is one test where you will actually see over time improvement in the gain as a patient goes through vestibular PT and, and they become more compensated. Okay. So is it beneficial for a physical therapists to have the results of these tests to, in order to help them in that rehab process? Or is it kind of ir, not irrelevant, but not necessarily necessary for them to be able to figure out what to do with that patient? Yes, that, that, that's a good question. So, so what I would say is this, I, I would say majority of physical therapists can probably do a really great job with physical therapy without actually those tests and, and the, the test confirmation. And the main reason I say that is 
you can have different findings on the test, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is the patient's clinical symptoms, how they feel, um, how stable they are. You could tell a patient that, hey, your, your rotary chair test looks excellent, but if they tell you they're, they're feeling terrible, they have other issues like visual dependence, I mean, it sort of doesn't really matter. And so what I would say is at the end of the day, it, it's not critical. Um, it can be helpful to, especially from a rotary chair test or from a V-hit test, if you're seeing more of those covert saccades, it can be helpful to have that evidence of compensation occurring. But I think most clinicians, uh, physical therapists, uh, are, 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 have enough experience to know that, that they, they, they know when patients are getting better versus not. Right. And they can do a lot of the, they can do the hints tests themselves, or if they have um, the frontal lenses or infrared goggles, they can put those on and see if there's anything to. So there's a lot that they can do without having just that objective formalized data, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, as especially with the, the goggles, um, the spontaneous nystagmus may settle down, but often positioning, positional nystagmus, head shake nystagmus, uh, head shake can still bring out that nystagmus if the patient is, is still not dynamically compensated. So, so there are multiple other ways to determine the status of compensation. Yes, and we often also use um, like dynamic visual acuity tests to, to look for that too. So there's a bunch of kind of things we can do just at like inexpensively in a clinic, so. Yes, I totally agree. Um, is there anything to know from, you know, whether or not a patient is compensated partially, fully, not compensated at all? Is there any kind of reasons why that may or may not happen or things that um, we can do to kind of either facilitate that? Yeah, so um, I often see patients in my clinic who are a year or two out and they have not fully compensated. Their head impulse test is still positive. Um, they've worked with a really great, reputable uh, physical therapist. Definitely, um, one, of the, one of the main things I, I always look for is, are there any things that are hindering the compensation? Uh, things that can hinder compensation include medications like vestibular suppressants, um, over-the-counter, Benadryl, cold or allergy pills, meclizine. Vestibular suppressants are helpful in the acute stage to help manage symptoms, but in the chronic stage, they're harmful for compensation. The other thing to consider too is, are there any other concurrent dizziness type of disorders? Uh, vestibular migraine, BPPV are most common sources of vertigo dizziness in the population. And so uh, somebody with vestibular neuritis can still have co concurrent vestibular migraine or particularly BPPV on the affected side. And so it's, it's really important to, if someone is not compensating, trying to get to the root of why that may be. Okay. And say a patient does compensate pretty well, gets back to their life. How frequent is it that they may have kind of like a little bit of a relapse in it? Is there anything that may cause that to happen? And what would be suggestions for them in terms of their care following that? So in terms of relapses, those definitely can occur. And they're generally tied in with the patient's general health. Like, for example, if they have uh, like a heart attack or something where they're in the hospital, 
Um, if they, even sometimes a mild upper respiratory infection can throw a patient out of compensation. Typically for those individuals though, doing the VOR exercises, doing the PT that they learned um, by themselves is, is typically what can bring them back to, to where they were after they were discharged from physical therapy. So it would just kind of be more of a temporary thing and then they can kind of get themselves back to where they were at their like new baseline. Yes, typically it would be temporary. Now, of course, if they have something like Meniere's disease or vestibular migraine or some other type of vertiginous syndrome, that can, that can prolong the, the, uh, the, the lack of compensation. And, and if someone is already compensated, it can make them uncompensated. But that's a, that's a pretty uh, extreme case, I would say. Okay. Well, thank you for this information. I think it's very helpful. Is there anything that you think we missed that you'd like to kind of make sure the listeners know? Um, I would say, um, I mean, overall, I, I think the, the vestibular testing is, is a, it's a useful adjunct, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary in terms of physical therapy. However, if someone is not compensating, it can be helpful to further investigate, have a, a, a physician partner to work with to really try to get to the roots and see if there are any other issues that might be hindering compensation. So, yeah. So, I mean, overall, though, I, I, in terms of testing, I, I think the testing typically doesn't make a huge difference to the course of the, the physical therapy treatment. Is there a time frame you think that if you're seeing a patient for and they're not improving as you would expect would be a good time to send them back for testing? Um, so what really comes to mind is patients with bilateral hypofunction because those are typically the most challenging types of patients. There are many causes for bilateral hypofunction, but one of the more common causes that's not idiopathic is aminoglycoside toxicity like gentamicin toxicity. There's a lot of evidence that shows that over two years, some of the hair cells aren't, aren't completely killed off. And so there can be some actually gain of VOR over two years. And so for a specific case like gentamicin toxicity in a bilateral hypofunction patient, getting rotary chair testing like once a year to see how their progress is can potentially be helpful. In terms of unilateral hypofunction though, um, I really, I'm just trying to think, I mean, rotary chair testing, if you have that available, can be helpful for showing when, when someone's more compensated or less compensated. But in terms of actual VNG and caloric testing, uh, I, I don't know if that's, because you cannot follow that serially to, to measure compensation, Caloric is usually just one time you do that and, and then you're done. V-HIT testing, I'm not really sure what the evidence is behind that, whether, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that the covert saccades would not become over it as someone's becoming more uncompensated. And so I, I don't think necessarily repeating V-HIT testing is as helpful. If there were any repeat testing, it probably would be the, the rotary chair. Okay, that sounds, that sounds good. Okay. Well, thank you for so much for coming on and presenting all this information. It's very helpful. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to this interview. 
which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physiotherapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.